guys. Great to have you with us today. We're continuing on through the book of Mark together. Uh, and today, uh, we're looking at yet another example of how Jesus came to restore the heart of spiritual disciplines, the heart of the Ten Commandments. Um, it's specifically uh, uh, looking at the Sabbath. And I just have to say this before I get going. I, I love this church. And um, every, every single week, a lot of pastors get different kinds of messages. And sometimes I get those ones that are discouraging too. But most of the time in this church, the messages that I get from people like you are, man, God is using his word to change my life. And guys, it's every single week I get this. It's not like, hey, I love that story that you told. It was like the word of God is transforming my life. That's why we preach through books of the Bible. That's why we put God on display in this church because he's the one that can change your life. And, and, uh, and we want to go after that uh, today as we look at Mark chapter 2 and 3. Uh, that being said, we're going to open our Bibles up and continue studying the life of Jesus. Um, you know, about a decade ago, uh, I was in a discipleship group with a guy named Monty Starks, not to be confused with Monty Python, but uh, he wanted to take us, man, you guys are almost awake. It's good. It's good. Uh, he wanted to take us away for a weekend to a place in Coleman, Alabama. Has anybody been to Coleman, Alabama before? Oh, man, a couple people have. You've been there. Uh, well, I went to a place that maybe you went to. Um, so we all, we hopped in this car, we started driving, we get off the interstate and there's literally nothing there. I'm like, Monty, where are we going? And then we pull into a monastery in Coleman, Alabama. Uh, and I don't know if you've been to a monastery before, uh, but, but they're beautiful places. But we get in, we pull into the parking spot. He opens up his glove box and he says, cell phones there now. And I was like, oh, okay. And this 10 years ago, we're pulling our cell phones out. He puts them in, he goes, you'll get them back on Sunday. This was Friday afternoon. And he goes, and by the way, before we get out of the car, I just got to tell you how this is going to work. This is a silent retreat. And I'm thinking, okay, I, can, I know how to be quiet. It's fine. Well, we get out of the car, and he, then he begins to tell us, okay, here's your, your room. You're going to be staying in the cloister with the monks. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm tracking. We're going to eat with the monks. You can't talk when you eat. And we're going to be silent the whole time. We're going to see what the Lord is going to do in our lives. And so I get into my room that first night. Oh, by the way, we're also singing, you know, morning prayers and evening vespers with the monks. It's this beautiful kind of thing to behold. But I get in my room that first night and like I am going stir crazy. I didn't know how hard it would be to just sit before the Lord. I didn't know how hard it would be to power down the engine that is my life for long enough to just hear God speak. Why is it so hard to be quiet? I was a church planner. We had a lot of stuff to do. We hadn't launched the church yet. And here this guy is telling me to be quiet for a whole weekend? You got to be kidding me, right? And so I stirred and I wrestled around with God and I was all over the map emotionally. God was dealing with me. Sunday morning, right before we pulled out, I didn't really have anything to share with the guys other than I was mad because not only was I had to be quiet all weekend, I didn't get anything done, right? So I was mad. I was sitting before the Lord and he took me to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, which began to be um, kind of an iconic passage of scripture for how the Lord would call us to plant this church. Isaiah 30, 15 says this. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning or repentance, as it can be translated as well, in repentance and rest, 
you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. Now, what I didn't know that weekend is that my life was driven by fear. My ministry was driven by fear. And all my motives, you guessed it, were driven by fear. Now, fear of what? Fear of not coming through, fear of not being enough, fear of failing as a church planner, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, fear of all of those things. And that fear led me to a perpetually active lifestyle that did not know how to sit and be still so that I could know that he is God. I don't do this perfectly, but it was in that moment 10 years ago that I began to discover that the rest that God desires to give us through the Sabbath is something that he wants for us, not something he wants from us. The, the problem is, the only way that you can learn this is not just by reading about it, but it's by experiencing it. I love what the mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal once said in his work, Pensies. He says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I mean, Blaise Pascal said it's got to be true, right? I mean, <laughs> so here's my question to you. What happens to you when you stop? Have you ever stopped before? Have you ever seized work? Have you ever seized activity? Because it's not just about stopping your activity. It's about actually engaging with the Lord from a place of rest. To have a quiet heart that the Lord speaks tenderly to, that he draws us in. How can we say, how can we really be able to say that we believe God is sovereign if we never stop long enough to experience his sovereign control. You know, the fact that he's holding the world together when we're resting. That he delights in loving us and caring for us. How can we experience that if we never stop long enough to experience his care? And the, the answer is this, we simply can't. You can know it up here, but you can't know it here. There's a big difference in knowing about the Sabbath up here and right here and right here, right? And so uh, this is the core of the message today. It's about learning to value the grace of God as he desires to give us a quiet heart that can receive his love and care apart from our perpetual activity. So what, what we'll see today is this. Is the Pharisees are going to criticize Jesus for how he and his disciples rest in the Lord's care. And they do it all under the guise of keeping the Sabbath. And what, what we don't see here is that they had added you know, dozens of regulations and rules to God's word uh, and, and then held others to that standard so that they could feel better about themselves. <clears throat> so today for us is an invitation to enter into the real rest of God and to continue entering in it over and over and over again. And what we're going to see is that, is that the, the, the Sabbath day is leading us to a Sabbath God, that he is Lord of the Sabbath who at the very center of his heart desires to give you and I rest. It's the whole thing Jesus came for. So here's our big idea today. Jesus is the Sabbath rest that we've all been longing for. So today we're going to look at three components, if you're a note taker, of Sabbath rest. We're going to look at the design of Sabbath rest, the distortions of Sabbath rest, 
and the recovery of it. So let's look at that first point together, the design of Sabbath rest. So Jesus has come uh, to bring the kingdom of God to the world. Uh, He's come to lift up the lowly, as Isaiah says, to, to restore the broken, to release the captives from slavery. As the book of Galatians will say, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. One of the ways, church, that Jesus has come to set us free is to, is, is, to, is to set us free by granting us Sabbath rest to our souls. But when we deny it, when we just blow through that command and that desire of the Lord's heart for us, we submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the spiritual disciplines that are intended to be a means of grace you know, they're, they're, they're intended to connect us to the heart of God, to the delight of God, to lead us to deeper freedom in Jesus, can become something entirely different when they're not actually connected to Jesus. I mean, last week we talked about fasting, right? How fasting had become a way to try to earn favor in the approval of God instead of connecting to the approval of God that we already have, right? Every single spiritual discipline can be that when it's not connected by the Holy Spirit's power to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, right? Anything can be, right? Your giving can be a way to show your worth before God, right? Uh, Sabbath can be uh, that same way as well. Uh, Today, most Westerners do not think about the Sabbath day. I mean, I've had the opportunity to go to Israel before, and when you go through uh, downtown Jerusalem, uh, I had the opportunity to be there on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day, which the Jews believe is Saturday, and so we're going through town. Uh, the other three quarters of the town, uh, Jerusalem is broken up into four uh, quarters, the Armenian, the, the Christian, uh, the Islamic, um, and then the Jewish quarter. In the Jewish quarter, you drive through, and it is like a ghost town. It is, it is dead. It is quiet because it's the Sabbath day. They take this thing. Seriously, everybody stops. Well, in our culture today, uh, we don't think about the Sabbath day. We don't frame our existence around it. We don't, we don't look at our work schedules and set up our companies around the Sabbath day. In Jewish culture, it was on Saturday, but Jesus rose on Sunday, and the apostles coined, and we hear about this in Revelation chapter 1, the, uh, uh, Sunday, the Lord's Day. And so Christians now celebrate the Sabbath on the day of the resurrection, which is the Lord's Day. But in Jesus' day, people needed <clears throat> to understand, you know, the, the heart behind the Sabbath. Um, in, in our day, we need to understand, like, the activity, the lack of activity in the Sabbath, right? I mean, there's this kind of polar opposites for us. We need to be challenged to stop long enough to connect ourselves to the delight that the Sabbath brings. And that can only happen through God's gift of the Sabbath that is for us. Um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism sums it up a little bit like this in, in question 60. How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? In other words, how do we actually change? How, how are our hearts and our lives changed by observing the Sabbath day? The answer is this. The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. So piety, necessity, mercy. Those are the things that lead 
to a, a, a heart that delights in the grace of God and the gift that his salvation in Jesus Christ is to us. Um, when our Sabbath day doesn't include those components, I don't see how it connects us to Jesus. And so, so, so this is kind of the frame that God is after for us, and it's what we see in the scriptures. And so as, as we read our, our scripture today, as we look at the book of Mark together, we're going to see the fact that the Lord decides to serve mercy on the Sabbath, that, that, that there is an act of necessity when they pluck these heads of grain together. It's all before the face of God. So let's look again at Mark chapter 2, now that we have the frame of what the Sabbath actually is and God's desire for us. He goes, on, he goes on to say this, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields as, as they made their way with his disciples and they began to pluck the heads of grain. Now the Pharisees are looking to find him out, they're looking to, they're looking to destroy Jesus and, uh, and they say this to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Now what law are they talking about? The laws that they created, right? And he said to them, basically, and I love this, hey guys, haven't you read your Bibles? Right? It's great. He says this, uh, have you not read what David did? And now, now David, who was David to these guys? He was the most person on the face of the planet to be revered, right? David, King David. Haven't you read what David did, guys? When he was in need and he was hungry, those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence. He ate the showbread, Right? And it's not lawful for anyone but priests to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And, they, and then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, Mark records something that no other gospel records about the principle to keep in mind about the Sabbath day. And it's this. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Meaning this, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath day. He calls the shots. He's in control, right? I mean, it's all about us being connected to him. It's not about, it's not about the stuff or even the lack of activity, although you can't, you can't be at rest with the Lord when you're busy, right? You got to be able to sit before him. The Sabbath day is a gift for mankind to be able to connect to Jesus and his design for your life. Now, Jesus, he's taking us back to the Garden of Eden when he says this. You know, when God himself rests from his work, it sets into motion this pattern, this rhythm of the Sabbath day as a delight in creation and for our work to connect us more deeply with our maker. And the thing that we got to realize is this, is that the Sabbath was given to be a delight because of God's work not a burden. Creation, from a Western point of view, was finished after the sixth day. I mean, we would a good American would read uh, Genesis 2 and be like, hey, man, why do we need seven days? We got it done at six, right? That's, that's the way we kind of look at it. But the scriptures say something different. Listen to what Genesis chapter 2 says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them after six days, Right? It's all finished. And on the seventh day, God still needed to finish his work that he had done, and he rested on that seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his works that he had done in creation. 
Now, the Lord intentionally took seven days to complete his creation. Not because he was tired, not because he just needed a nap from speaking everything into existence, but because he's showing us the design of his creation rhythm, which is thus our creation rhythm. That rest is a crucial part of our delight in his presence. And in fact, the first day of the week is a day of rest, right? Which shows us what? That his design for us is to work from rest, not for rest. Yet when we look at God's design and we scoff at the beauty of reflection that happens on that seventh day, you know, that pursuit of the inner life of the Lord, we scoff at the lack of production, we miss the point altogether. Now, Jesus goes on to illustrate it one more time for us in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, again, he entered the synagogue, it's still the Sabbath day, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they, the Pharisees, still had their eyes locked in on Jesus. They wanted to destroy this guy. They wanted to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. What that tells us, they probably baited Jesus. They probably put that guy there to try to find Jesus out. They knew he was going to heal him. I love that. What would it be like? I mean, I know he's going to heal this guy, right? I mean, what, what a great reputation to have. And, and he says to the man with the withered hand, come here. So the, the Pharisees are over there watching in the corner in the shadows, right? Withered man's here. Jesus and disciples. He says, come here. He brings the guy up, stands him next to him. Then he, what does he do? He doesn't address this guy. He addresses those guys. And he says this, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill someone? Because for Jesus not to heal this man was to kill him. That's what he's saying here. <clears throat> but they were silent. And he looked around at them and he's with anger and he's grieved at what? Their hardness of heart. These are the people that have been leading God's people. Look at how hard their hearts are toward the true purposes of the Sabbath day. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. This man can stretch out his hand. He, wa he walked like this. His hand was withered. It was not functional. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them on how to destroy him. So Jesus and his disciples are going to church together on the Sabbath, right? He heals this man. Now, this is the kind of man that's brought into the synagogue that really needs this kind of encouragement, right? He's been beat up by the world his whole life. And the fullness of God's presence is standing in his midst in that synagogue. And Jesus can't help but have mercy on the man. He can't help it. Now, apparently, the, the Pharisees, you know, staged this whole thing. And who are they reflecting in this as they accuse Jesus? Who is the enemy? What is one of his titles? The accuser of the brethren. They are accusing Jesus, reflecting far much more the enemy than our Father in heaven. So Jesus asked the question, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? But this man was damaged goods, right? He was just a pawn in the Pharisees' self-help narrative. But Jesus approached this man differently, and this is where I want you to, to cue in here. Jesus sees this man with a withered, inoperable, and crippled hand, 
And Jesus not only sees this man, but he wants to restore life to this man. And so he does it in just like he does to each and every one of us. That is his desire for his people, is to restore life to us. Church, one of the ways that he is restoring life to us right here today is by giving us the gift of Sabbath. Promising to hold the world together in Christ while you cease activity, while you stop long enough to trust Jesus to hold your life together. He can't help but show mercy. And these Pharisees, their hearts are more withered, far more withered than this man's hand ever was. The Sabbath, church, is not a restriction of delight, but rather an intentional rhythm that leads to an expansion for greater capacity for delight in God. It's about a restoration of life to our souls. So my question to you is this. Is Sunday, the Sabbath, is it different for you? How might the Lord be offering life and growth to you by actually obeying the Sabbath day? Now, it's, it's, it's like one of those things, like whether it be tithing or, or any other kind of spiritual discipline or command that God gives us, either you're in or you're out. Now, you can be about that physical activity. Like you can, stop, you can give money and your heart not be in it, right? You can give your day and your heart not be in it, but you can't not give your day and your heart be in it. You see what I'm saying? And so, and so the, the question is, Have you ever had a rhythm where you are intentionally um, linking up with God's promise to give you delight in Jesus by obeying the Sabbath day? How might Jesus want to restore your withered heart today? Do you have any idea what your capacity for delight might be in Jesus? So we've looked at some of these distortions, but let's kind of keep looking at these right here. You know, the Pharisees had their own distortions. We've probably got some of those similarities. We've got some differences as well. Um, A Jewish writer, uh, Abram Heschel, wrote this book about 70 years ago about the Sabbath. And I'm going to read to you a quote from it that uh, really uh, has had my head spinning all week. Here's what he says. He who wants to enter the holiness of the day must first lay down the profanity of clattering commerce, of being yoked to toil. He must go away from the screech of dissonant days, from the nervousness and the fury of acquisitiveness and the betrayal in embezzling his own life. He must say farewell to manual work and learn to understand that the world has already been created and will survive without the help of man. Six days a week, we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Six days a week, we dominate the world. On the seventh day, we try to dominate the self. Love that quote, the world will survive without the help of man. Let me add this statement. I think it's in line. Your world will survive without your help. Do you believe that this morning? The invitation is to pay attention to our inner world on the Sabbath, to dominate the self, as Heschel says. Dan Allender, who's an author, professor, and therapist, 
wrote a book on the Sabbath as well. And he asked uh, a lot of questions of his students and, and reflected on that. And he asked this question, what keeps us from the Sabbath? I want to share a couple of those themes that surfaced for him. The first one's pretty clear. It's distraction, right? And for most Christians, it looks like this. We desire when we leave this place today to go out and to really reflect, to, to read a good uh, book that's devotional, it's going to lead us to Jesus, uh, to have a good meal with family and friends, to, to have a laid back and restful afternoon. But here's what's going to happen with most of you this afternoon. <clears throat> You're going to check your work email, right? And that, that's where it really, the house of cards starts to fall, right? You're going to check your work email at about 3 o'clock, planning for your day tomorrow. And, uh, and something's going to be urgent. Something's going to trigger something inside of you that's going to start your heart rate to just, to just uh, rise, right? And you're going to start to not be at rest anymore. Or maybe this, your kids are going to ask to be a part of something, right? They're going to ask you to run, run them here or there, and it's going to completely mess up your, your rhythm that you had. And, and all of a sudden, you're going to be reminded of all the things that you're behind on. And you're going to use Sunday afternoon as a catch-up day for all the ways that you overfunction during the week, right? Because we all do that. We jam eight days into a seven-day week, which means that we've got two extra days, right? So there's no way we can Sabbath. The distractions might look different for you, but I know this, that we have to ruthlessly eliminate them if we're ever going to get to the heart of what God has designed for us in the Sabbath. Or maybe this is kind of the other end of the spectrum. Maybe fear of delight is what keeps you from the Sabbath. Maybe many of us, if we're honest, are afraid of what we might discover if we actually stop and choose to pursue delight in Jesus. You say, Pastor, that's crazy, right? If we're honest, the grind of work is much more predictable and comfortable than rest. As crazy as it sounds on its face, it's exactly why the Israelites wanted to go back into slavery in Egypt, right? It was much more comfortable being enslaved to the Pharaoh than, to learning, than learning to trust the Lord, even in the wilderness moments of life. And Allender says we are driven from delight in the Lord because our work gives us a sense of power and control. And, and, but it has this adverse effect on our capacity to delight in Jesus that we're not considering, right? Isaiah 58 says it like this. It's a warning that he's giving to Israel. If you turn your back, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, let me pause real quick. We have to understand this about the history of God's people. Honoring the Sabbath day is something that's been a distinctive of God's people, a, a thing that's very different than any other religion, right? It's been a distinctive of God's people since creation. And so... Isaiah is warning the Israelites, hey, your foot has stopped. You guys look just like everybody else now. So that's kind of the context of this warning. He says, you know, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath instead a delight in the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, which is what the command says, right, honor, honor the Sabbath, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or even talking idly. Then you shall take delight in the Lord. When's the last time you thought about that word? 
Delight yourselves in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. When's the last time the word delight was in your vocabulary? He says, I'll make you, then I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth. I'll give you everything that really your heart wanted. And I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. Your name will last. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So he's saying this to, to the Israelites, but also to us. The option is yours. You can keep going your own way, convinced that there is no cost to forgetting and dishonoring the Sabbath day. You can keep doing that. Or you can stop and perhaps finally discover that all along, Jesus has been holding your life and his world together by the power of his miraculous grace. But we'll never be able to experience this unless we stop long enough to experience his sovereign control, that we wouldn't just say, yes, God is sovereign, but we would know that God is sovereign. We do this in the Sabbath moments, days, and seasons of life. And what we discover is this, is that everything's going to be okay because there's never been a day that God has not been working in your waiting, seeking to give rest to your soul and holistic shalom for his people. Peace. One of Allender's students confessed this to him regarding the design of Sabbath. And maybe, uh, maybe you can resonate with it. He says this, I can't imagine God would want such goodness for me. What a skewed view of the Father, right? How many of you would lift up your hand if I said you believe the same thing? I can't imagine God would want such goodness for me. I know that it's called grace, but I never thought it was supposed to be a part of my week as a regular experience. What a sad view that many of us carry into each and every week. Let me put it this way. Grace is on God's calendar for you every single week. But is it on yours? Or do you keep declining the invitation, declining the meeting request, right? to come and find rest in his finished work on your behalf. Let's close out with this. Let's look at this recovery of Sabbath rest for us. We're going to look at the book of Hebrews if you've got your Bible open here. So how might we begin to recover God's design for us to, to, to test his grace and to live in his delight? What might it look like for us? What might it... What might it change in us if we actually believe that the Sabbath was a foretaste of eternity that we get to enter into every single week? The book of Hebrews writes about it like this. He's writing about the, the future state of God's people entering into the rest of God. He says this in Hebrews 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, what's he talking about of Joshua? What did Joshua do? Joshua led, not Moses, Joshua, not Moses, led God's people into where? The promised land, right? The land of Canaan. The land that was flowing with milk and with honey that would eventually be taken away, right? It was a, it was a temporary kind of promised land, a temporary delight for God's people that was really contingent upon their obedience in a lot of ways and God's grace. He says, you know, a lot of us are looking for the kind of rest that Joshua led God's people to. It's this temporary rest. Some of us would be uh, content if life in this earth would just be a little easier. And what it shows to us is that our capacity, our range of delight 
is shrunk. It's too small. C.S. Lewis writes about this, right? That we're settling for mud pies instead of thinking about a day at the sea, right? What the Sabbath does is it expands your ability to delight. And it keeps you longing for the full and final rest that God will give to his people in eternity. She says, for as Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You see, when you walk out of these doors, nobody's going to tell you that you're being disobedient by not acknowledging and honoring the Sabbath day. No one's going to say that. Now, what it looks like you for to practice and participate the Sabbath, it's gonna, there's a range, right? We know that there's some components that got to be in there, right? Uh, works of piety, I mean, worshiping the Lord, seeking the Lord's face, mercy, necessity, things like that. But, but the writer of Hebrews is exhorting us that there remains for us a full and final rest that we just get to get a taste of each and every week. Um, but if we disobey the command, how can we expect to enter the full and final promise of his rest in eternity? Like if we're denying the gift, the taste that he gives us today, what makes us think that we're on the trajectory for the full and final rest? And then he goes on to share a passage of scripture that doesn't seem to fit, right? I, I don't think you've ever thought about this passage that you know from Hebrews 4.12. Most of you in here know this passage. I don't think you've ever connected this to disobedience for not resting in God. But it is. He says this. Because he's talking about the, the same sort of disobedience. And he goes on to say this in verse 12. For the word of God is living and it's active. It, it's sharper than, than any two-edged sword. It's, it's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. God's word slices and dices our hearts open, and for good purpose, because we'll never enter his rest unless it does so, unless we respond to the conviction of God's word. God's word is given to us today to reconnect us to the rest that Jesus Christ came to give us through his work. So today, what is God's word doing in your heart? How is the fact that God sent his son to do all of the work for us so that we could come to him, you know, weary and heavy laden and receive his rest. What does that do inside of you today? Does it give you any kind of confidence that he is Lord even of the Sabbath, that he will care for you, that he'll lead you to still waters, that he'll, he'll cause you to lie down in his presence? Does it give you any kind of confidence that God sent his son to do all that work and then raised him from the dead. Jesus has done all the work necessary to bring rest to your soul. And now he invites you to a life of rest in his presence. Rest from the toil of physical labor, sure. But also resting from the toil of approval. The toil of grasping for your own identity through what you can produce with your life. And may we all strive to enter that rest, that rest that lasts, the rest that cures our souls, the rest that makes us whole, the rest that's in the finished work of Jesus that we so quickly can forget.
St. Augustine said this in his, his work Confessions. Our souls are restless until they find their rest in him. My prayers today is that you would choose to find your rest in Christ. And I don't know what that means for each and every one of you, but I know that's the only place that's going to lead to your capacity of delight growing. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.